Good morning, my name is Ryan, and I'm one of the pastors here at HPIP. Um, we are continuing and concluding our series um, uh, in the to address the elephant in the room. I'm not preaching from the pulpit. We're all just going to take a deep breath and power through it. Uh, I'm a pastor. I have to, I have to move, so uh, we're going to rock with it. But uh, we are concluding our series, Guide Midnight Weekly, um, reviewing different passages, stories in Scripture that uh, contain events that happen at midnight, like literally 12 p.m., um, and just kind of pulling out whatever we may find from those different passages. Uh, this week, uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 20. Uh, if you have a Bible or a phone, I encourage you to turn to it now. We'll be in that for a good portion of the morning. This is the story of uh, Paul and Eutychus. Eutychus is supposed to uh, start sermons with like funny stories or something. I don't have one for you. We're just going to go get right into it. Uh, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, like, I'll tell a story about mowing the lawn last week and then say, like, in a lot of ways, God's like a lawnmower, right? And then get into the thing. Uh, I'm just really bad at that. So we're just going to get right into uh, preaching on Acts chapter 20, uh, starting at verse 7. Uh, so I would invite you to join me. It's on the screen as well. Uh, Paul is with a group of Christians in Macedonia in a city called Troas. Uh, and he's speaking to them, and that's uh, all you really need to get started. So on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, pause. Uh, there's certain passages in the book of Acts where Luke, the author and narrator, uh, speaks in the first person, like we or I, because sometimes he was with Paul, sometimes he wasn't. Anyway, that's where it's Luke. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, seated in a window with a young man named Eutychus, whose name in Greek means fortunate, uh, which is going to come to play. Um, uh, Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on, comfort my people, every preacher does it. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, Paul left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Uh, would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, I pray that um, your spirit would speak through this time we have together, through my words, through our hearts, and our listening ears, that we would uh, hear from you in this, that we would be formed and shaped and comforted by you and into your image, um, uh, in hearing uh, your word. Amen. All right, so my first thought when I read this story, besides the fact that it's kind of, it's pretty funny, I think intentionally, uh, it, it's like, okay, so what? Why would Hank give me this one to preach? Very nice. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's interesting, it, it's funny, but in terms of like broad significance, in terms of something that you preach, right? Uh, what are we going to do with this? A guy falls out a window during the sermon and dies, and Paul brings it back to life. Uh, so what? Right? Um, few potential takeaways. Let me just blow a few out to you. Uh, don't fall asleep during the sermon. You just you never know, right? Um, you just never know. Uh, to me, as someone who does preach on occasion, or to you if you ever preach or um, have to do like public speaking or anything, like just know that however bad it gets, however bad it's going. You probably never literally bored someone to death, so that is also a positive takeaway. Um, 
it might be a good idea to name your kid fortunate, but just as an insurance policy, um, works out for you because in this situation. Um, yeah, on a more serious note, uh, it, it's always cool, in my opinion, to see instances in the Book of Acts, uh, or in the New Testament, I should say, where people decide Jesus to raise from the dead. It happens like a surprising amount, right? It happens earlier in the Book of Acts, Jesus twice in the Gospels raises different people to life. You know, we hear that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, but especially these other little instances of resurrection that crop up in the New Testament. The manner of this miracle uh, that Paul does is really reminiscent of two that happened in First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. So this is the era of the Kings. Uh, First Kings chapter 17, a guy named Elijah, who is a prophet, uh, raises a young man from the dead in a very similar way, kind of like stretches out over him and breathes life back into him. And in 2 Kings 4, Elijah's protege, Elisha, does like basically the exact same thing uh, with another young man. So it seems like a very striking parallel there to what Paul does here. I don't really know what to make of that parallel necessarily, except Paul, I guess, is in the mold of these kind of Old Testament prophets uh, in, in his ministry, empowered by the Spirit of Jesus for miracles. So that's, that's cool, there's that, right? Um, but, but I think there's more to be drawn out from this passage. I think there's more of a, of a so what here somewhere. So we're going to press in and ask a, a few questions of this passage and try and get at like, what more might be going on here. And as I look at this, and, and, for, and I will say too that like, when you come across the passage, it's like, what the heck is going on here? Why is this in the Bible? That's usually like a good like sign that you should press in a little more and dig a little more because there's usually interesting stuff going on. Um, my first question when I read this is, why in the world is Paul preaching until midnight? And why did he feel compelled? This is the wildest thing about this passage. Eutychus falls out of the, of the window and dies. Paul raises him from the dead. And then Paul's like, anyway, yeah, so I was only on point number two. So we get back up there and then wrap it up. I worked a long time on this sermon. Um, that is wild on Paul's part. Um, why does he feel compelled to preach not just till midnight, but all night, right? All night. All night. We are told in verse 7, uh, basically the answer, kind of, because he spoke long because he intended to leave the next day. So, I guess, fair enough, he'd been in Troas for a week. He's moving on. He had a lot to say to these people, I guess, right? Um, but that's another question. Where was Paul going that he had to leave? Uh, where had Paul been coming from? So, in the book of Acts, Paul goes on three different missionary journeys, and this takes place on the third one. Um, so on the third one, he goes out, he goes west, so west to you guys in this direction. He goes west up through Macedonia, then down through Greece, and then he's coming back on his return trip up through, he basically retraces his steps back through Macedonia, spends a couple months in this place called Philippi for the church there, and then makes a stop in Troas for a week. Um, and then where is he going? He heads from Troas, a couple places in Asia Minor, works his way back east, this way now, to uh, Jerusalem. This is his final destination for this trip. Uh, on his way back to Jerusalem, he actually sends a letter to the elders in Ephesus, uh, which sheds more light on what's going on. And it's interesting, he doesn't go to Ephesus, because last time he was in Ephesus, he kind of like started a little riot, and then the whole town went crazy and almost killed him. So, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just sail by Ephesus and send them a letter. That sounds more powerful right now. Uh, and in this letter, he says to them, and this is in verse 22 of chapter 20, he says, now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison 
and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Right, so that kind of answers our question fully, right? That definitely gives us context. So why would Paul push to midnight and beyond? Because we know now that he was never coming back. Everywhere he went, the Spirit was telling him, go to Jerusalem, and you're never going to see these people again, right? He was convinced that he was, he was moving on through Troas, you know, at the path as it is through Philippi. He was never going to see these people again. I think we can relate to that to some degree, right? A couple months ago, I had friends in from Jersey, from when I lived in Jersey. I'd seen them like four years. I didn't know if I wasn't going to see them for another four years. So I'm like talking to them, and it's like midnight and 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. My wife asked me, like, oh, seriously, you're still talking right now? And then the people that I was with are like, dude, are you still talking right now? Like, we want to go to sleep. But I'm seeing them, I didn't know when I was going to see them again. So, like, imagine knowing, like, you're never going to see these people again that you're with. You push it too, right? And this also underscores a pretty obvious theme happening in the latter uh, part of the book of Acts. Um, we find Paul beginning to face toward Jerusalem. He's intent on going there, where he's eventually arrested and turned over first to the Jewish authorities and then eventually to the Roman authorities. Does that sound familiar? In our story in Acts 20, Paul is meeting with disciples of Jesus, and the text makes the point to say he's meeting with them in an upper room where they are breaking bread together. Does that sound familiar? Paul, like Jesus, is marching toward Jerusalem, led by the Spirit, marching towards his own death. So Paul, it would come after years of imprisonment, after many literal trials before authority, but that he is moving towards his own death. This puts what happens with Eutychus into perspective. And I would imagine that at least for Paul, you know, what he is heading into, what he knows he's heading into, that had to have added some real extra significance to the resurrection of Eutychus, right? You know, for Paul to know, in the middle of that literal midnight, in the middle of his personal midnight, of the Spirit speaking to him and saying, like, this is it, man. Like, you're going to Jerusalem and, and, and not get right? He knows that so in the middle of this personal midnight, the dark night of the soul, maybe for Paul, he, he, could, be, he could be part of the joy of Eutychus being raised. He could be reminded that there is resurrection, amen? That there is the promise of new life, of tragedy being reversed, of death not getting the last word. Paul got to experience that in the raising of Eutychus, and I have to imagine that empowered him for what he was then marching into. What I want to hone in on with the rest of my time here is Paul's attitude towards death and life exhibited in this story and elsewhere, um, because it is radically different than my view of death and life, and probably radically different than your view of death and life. We see it in this story, right? The guy barely stops this sermon to raise Eutychus from the dead. In his words to the Ephesians, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. He just wants to finish the work Jesus gave him to do. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he's discussing the promise of the resurrection of the Corinthian church, he breaks into the poetry of Hosea and he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? That's what Paul thinks about death. He's 
he's gloating, he's flexing on death. He's like, what, what, do you have anything else for me? Well, Paul eventually finds himself in prison in Rome later on in his life after this point. He writes a letter to the church at Philippi, the place that he was at right before Troy, and he says, I will continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Pause on that for a second. What does Paul mean when he says, my deliverance in that passage? He might mean, like, getting out of prison, right? Later he seems to suggest maybe he thinks he's going to get out of prison. Um, we don't know if Paul ever gets out of prison, right? If he does, he gets out for, like, max two years. He probably stayed around Rome. He might have maybe made it to Spain briefly, but we know he goes back to prison. And then dies, right? So maybe that's what he means by deliverance. But I think when we read this passage and we see what immediately follows, he says, For my deliverance, that I wouldn't be ashamed, that I would have enough courage to exalt Christ in this body, in life or in death. I think deliverance for Paul means when he thinks about what does it mean for me to make it through this situation? It doesn't mean survive, it doesn't mean get out of prison. For Paul, it means being granted the grace and the courage to hold my head up high, whether I live or die. To run the race well, regardless of the outcome for me. I'm concerned about how it reflects on Christ. That is a race for one. That is victory for Paul. That is deliverance for Paul. He goes on to say in the very next verse, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. I started off a joke and then just left turned it into all this nonsense. But to live is Christ and to die is sin. He goes on, he says, If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will be fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And, and maybe it's a little easier for him to say when he's in prison, but I think Paul would think this way regardless. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Life means nothing to me, says Paul, only that I might finish the race. I'm confident I will be delivered, that I will die well, that I will rest Christ well in my experience. Is that your perspective on death and life? To live with Christ, to die is gain. Paul Paul's view it and keeps death in a very particular perspective and life in a very particular perspective. First of all, death is not the end. Amen? We see that in, in the joy of Eutychus being raised. This is a foretaste of the resurrection that will come one day for all of God's people. Death is not the end. That is the beginning of life in the true, full presence of Christ. Death is gain. I'm going to keep saying it because our minds, our hearts are so wired to think the exact opposite of that. But for Paul, death is gain. Death is not the end. And life is about serving Christ. Because to live is Christ, which doesn't even make grammatical sense. But Paul's going to do that every once in a while. He's just going to say, to live is Christ. Christ is everything. 
Christ is the purpose for life. He is the power to get through life. When we live, we are called in Christ. We have joy, and we have peace, and we have power in Him so that we can fulfill the mission that He has laid upon us. That's the, the point of our lives, the source of our joy and peace, the reason for our power. Life is worth nothing apart from running the race that Christ has set out before us. He lives Christ to die and save And I'll be real with you, I don't care about perspective on this. And I'll be honest about that here. Okay, thank you. I don't know what I would have learned if said no. So that's it. So as a 16-year-old Christian kid in youth group growing up, I had a thought that I'm sure that literally millions of Christians in youth group had. It's almost a cliche or a joke at this point, but, uh, you know, we have the whatever youth group night where we're talking about the return of Jesus, right? How great and wonderful this is going to be! Whether I remember we're talking about the second coming, whatever. Um, and I look around at everyone, and I'm reading the scripture. I'm like, I'm supposed to like want this, right? So I'm, I'm trying to talk myself through it. And I'm like, yes, yes, no. I definitely want. It would be given, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. But could you hold? Like, I really wanted to get my driver's license for Jesus. So. I've never driven anywhere yet. Come, Lord Jesus. So like. I don't know, like, I don't want to get married, because you know, when you get married, then you can, like, you, you know, and if I can experience that at least, like, the one time before you come back, Lord Jesus, please. And then, you know, like, I don't know, like, it'd be nice to not be totally broke and only be able to afford that and do, like, maybe if I can get a job, it's great. I mean, like, having kids would be really nice, and I want to see, you know, them grow up and, and drive and get married, etc. So, yeah, no, but come, Lord Jesus, right? But, like, but I don't know, like, the new Avengers movie comes out, like, next May, so maybe if we could time it up, we'll even know what happens. Um, the truth is, I, I love life, right? I love life. Intellectually, I can say that Jesus coming back now or me dying now, that, that would be gain, right? Like, but, like, at some level, I think that's true. My, my mouth can form those words, right? But as for really and truly believing that, like Paul did, uh, living like it, like, no, I love life to the point where I fear death. Uh, I was privileged enough growing up to uh, not really be very well acquainted with death as a young man. Uh, not everyone has that privilege. Maybe most people don't have that privilege uh, as a a lot of us in, in America tend to, right? We certainly are a culture that's everything it can to insulate us from death, you know? And we live in a, an age and an era where we're not fighting wars on our own soil, right? We just fight on other people's soil and send weapons over. But, you know, that's an aside, and it's kind of, that proves the point, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. That's not a present thing for us, right? Um, um, we, you know, we made so many advances on like medicine and diseases to now the point but the point where we just like expect that we will get better when we receive these diagnoses. You know, we're insulated from that for so for so much. Uh, so, so I typical of some in my culture, like I, I never really thought about death growing up. When I was nineteen I experienced my first death. My grandmother passed away. I was incredibly close with her. Um, and it was really terribly sad. Um, but I didn't, it didn't like hit me at an existential level, right? Like, you know, I'm 19. 
was really sad, but also like, I'm going to college, I'm dating, I feel like I'm going to live forever. Um, it didn't necessarily hit me. Then a number of years later, so five years ago, um, my grandfather died after a two-year battle with cancer, um, over which we kind of uh, watched him waste away. And so I'm like 20 or 29 years old at this point. I know that. That's pretty old. Um, and <laughs> we're watching and experiencing walking through uh, this with him. And when he was nearing the end, we knew it was going to be a tiny day. I came home from Jersey uh, where I was living, and I stayed with my parents. Um, my mom was a career NICU nurse, and she had basically been providing hospice care for him for the last couple months of his life. And um, over in the Midwest. And one night, we got a call at my house in Harrisburg um, from my mom, who was with him at three in the morning, say that he had had a pass. Um, we went over there, and we get there, and my mom's over in pain, and he had, he had a pass uh, in the restroom, and he had to get to the bathroom to go. And so I had this, this moment with my parents. I'm sorry, this is like, <laughs> I hope this isn't triggering, triggering for you. Um, but, you know, the experience of, of helping my parents move him back into his bed and cleaning him up and laying him down and seeing my, you know, my mother after that um, break down and what she had to carry in those moments. Um, and I know this can be, like, triggering, and I apologize, but it, it, death is, it, it's real. And for many of us, it, it's not something we're into. It's, uh, you know, it's something that we experience viscerally and, and So I think about it now. <laughs> it, it, it's a part of my life now. Um, through that whole months-long process, and then being in the room with, with, with him, with my parents, you know, I started to see death more up close as a reality. And I, it felt disturbing, and it felt unnatural, and it felt so wrong. That this person who, who had always been in my life, this person with it, with their decades of, of memories and laughter and struggles and desires was just gone. It was like God was there. They weren't there anymore. It felt so wrong. It still feels wrong. With every year that I've gotten older, death becomes more real. Its presence in my life becomes more pronounced. For many of us, that's old news, right? For many of us, that's been our whole life. In the past few years, I've walked with a dear church member who suddenly lost her husband to a rare autoimmune disorder at a fairly young age. Um, this time last year, June 8th, so it's coming up um, Thursday, uh, my brother-in-law passed away at the age of 40. Uh, we still don't know why. That's the hardest part. Some just freak infection or something that's took him at the age of 40. Uh, a couple months after that, uh, my friend Bonnie, my age, 34, three young kids, most vibrant person I know. Uh, he, yeah, he just he he passed away. He went into the hospital with a cancer diagnosis and never came back. And he died two weeks later. Um, folks in this church have lost people this year, in the past years, or dripping with the fear of losing someone, or maybe staring down a daunting and difficult diagnosis for themselves, for family members, for a child. Through all this, death has continued to feel disturbing and wrong. And I hasten to say, like, it's good, right? Death is wrong. It is wrong. Scripture labels it an enemy. 
And it's not for nothing that our faith is centered around the resurrection of Jesus, right? That the final hope we cling to is death and all the damage it has caused in our lives and our world. Will all of that will be healed and reversed and undone? Amen. We are not Good Friday people. We are Easter Sunday people. Amen. It's not for nothing that that's at the center of our faith. So I think as followers of Jesus, we should cultivate a holy hatred for death. We should hate it. We should fight against it. We are people who are radically for life. You know, as an Anabaptist church, this informs our peace position, right? We don't think that the taking of human life, the loss of human life, is ever just like tolerable part of doing business just the way it is. Like, no, death is the final enemy and it will be destroyed. Amen? So we should hate death. But we shouldn't fear it. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children of humans have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he may break the power of him who holds the power of the death of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's an, an atonement theory, quote unquote, that doesn't get as much airplay, right? To kind of talk about salvation from our sins, which the author of Hebrews mentions like in the very next verse. But, you know, in the defeat of the devil, etc. But in the cross of Christ, we are saved from the fear of death. Or at least we should be, right? Too often I, I am deeply fearful of death. Even just the process of getting older. I think once you have a kid, it kind of hits home. Like, okay, I'm like, okay, I'm getting replaced here slowly every day, right? I'm getting older. I'm watching the world change. I'm recognizing that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of haunted by the fact that, like, this, this life that I'm living, like, I only get to one, you know? I only get one June 4th, 2023. I'm never going to get one of these again. And it just keeps marching on. And then I'll be gone. And I'll be forgotten so quickly. Fear of death comes, I think, both tied up in an unhealthy love of life. Kind of like clinging to life, like that, that 16 year old Ryan. I don't, I don't want to go yet, Jesus. There's so much I want to do for me. There's, there's so much I want to see for me. Like I fear death. I don't long for Jesus is coming because I'm, I'm in love with this life, with this world. So even though I have hope and I believe that I will, I will see my grandparents again, and I believe that I will see my friend Bonnie again in the next life, I'm still wrapped with despair and fear and discomfort at the idea because I act like this one small life that I have is all that I have. That's how I act. But Jesus said in John 12 that anyone who loves their life will lose it. But anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Other gospel passages say something like that. You know, or loses their life for my sake. They're hated. So, like, listen, death is terrible. Death is the enemy. I feel it. And I feel that with all of you. And life is really good. We were created to live. We were created to take in the joy of life, to glorify God in our enjoyment. Even in our even in our toil and our struggle, we're meant to take joy in that. We were meant to live. 
So Jesus isn't talking about when he says, you know, lose your life, hate your life. He's not talking about like oblivion. We're not Buddhist. We're not just trying to like, empty ourselves and become nothing and fade into the universe. That is, that is not it. God, you know, you, it doesn't mean ceasing to be all that God created you to be. All the, the wonder and the uniqueness of who you are, your family, your relationships, your memories, all of it. All of your life is so precious in God's sight. Life is good. There's wisdom in the words of Jesus that it keeps life in perspective. Life is good, but don't love it. Don't hang all your fulfillment and your hopes and your purpose on this tiny thing of years, or you'll lose your life. As if, you know, you know you, if, if you live only for this life, you might lose out on the next one. But at another level, loving this life kind of ruins this life, right? You know, my clinging to life, my, my fear of death hasn't made my life any better. It's filled me with fear and anger and bitterness, right? It's made me feel this sense of dread with every passing day. My love of life, my fear of death, makes me feel like I'm trying to hold the, the hourglass stands in my hand. And the more I struggle to hold them, the more they start to just slip through my fingers and I lose them. I can't hold them. I can't slow them down. When we love our life, we lose it. But when we lose our life for Jesus, maybe not too literally dying, maybe just too sacrificing our desires, to letting go of our bucket list, our expectations for what we think life is going to give us, when we let go of that, we stop trying to hold that sand in our hands. And Jesus says that's when we really find us and joy and freedom in however many days we have left. I'm going to attempt a basketball analogy here for a second. Now, forgive me. I am a fan of the beloved, the hated Philadelphia Sunday Sisters. Speaking of death, yikes. Yeah. Um, the Sunday Sisters have not won a championship since 1983. They have not made it out of the second round of the playoffs. And um, I, I shudder to even utter how long it's been. It's been a long time. And every year, the pressure kind of builds on them, and they're like, this, this team is obsessed. It's like, we've got to go out of the second round of the playoffs. We've got to silence all the critics on Philly Sports Radio. We've got to exercise our demons. And so they go into, they have a good series against the game five, and what happened this year? They get to game six, game seven, and they like, they choke. They have a lead with five minutes left in game six, and they're like, they freeze up. They start trying to like, ah, oh, this is it. We're going to lose it. We never made it past this point. They lose, and then they just get embarrassed in Game 7. It turns out being obsessed, being afraid to lose, doesn't actually help you win the game. It makes you choke in big moments. It's a weird analogy, but just like stick with me here. If you're afraid of losing, you're going to lose. If you love your life, and you fear death, and you're, you're tensing up, you're flushing out of that death, you're going you're gonna to mess up your life, right? So we just gotta go hoop, amen. <laughs> we just gotta go ball. That's it. Thank you. We gotta play free. We just gotta live. That's that's the freedom that Paul experiences, right? It's the freedom to march to Jerusalem and say, "I consider my life worth nothing." Not only is it substantial what Jesus is giving me, I'm just gonna go ball and play for everybody else. When your life's worth nothing to you, that you can really live 
that you don't fear death. Then when, when a young man dies in the middle of your sermon, you run out there and you say, not today, Satan, and then you raise the light, and then you finish your point, and you preach so on until morning. In the raising of Eutychus, Paul's attitude towards death is almost like casual flippant. For Paul, that's not something to dread. That's an annoyance, right? That's an interruption. Amen? It's had its day. And it's coming to an end. But we're saved from fear of death. We are saved from the love of life so that we can truly live. We're saved from needing to prove ourselves, to make something that will last, to make a legacy, whatever that means, right? But this guy, Count Zinzendorf, who wins the Optimus Name Award, uh, he started the Moravian Church a long, long time ago. Uh, and he was famous for uh, this quote that basically said, uh, Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. I know someone has that tattooed on their arm in the sanctuary, right? That's like his mantra, right? Preach Christ, die, and be forgotten. That, that's a type of freedom, right? That is the type of freedom. I want to experience that. You know, and I say all this as someone who still feels deeply the losses that I and my family and my, and my friends and loved ones have experienced. Especially in the last year. Now, I say that as someone whose heart breaks daily for the losses experienced in this church. For the diagnosis, for, for the dread that hangs over us. I say that as someone who most days loves this life too much. So as I end here, like, I just, all this can be is just like, God change me, please. I just pray that God would transform me. I pray that my heart, my actions, my outlook would be transformed, that I wouldn't live like this is it. But this, you know, is anything more than just the beginning. But God, I don't want to see things that way. Philippians 3. I've been reading Philippians just over and over the last couple months, and I've been formed a lot of this false I want to know Christ. I don't want to fear his yearning in that. I want to feel that yearning. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is what we celebrate on Friday and on Easter and communion and, and when we're baptized and we go down into the water participating in the death of Christ and then we're raised up participating in the new life of Christ. We come up out of the water new and changed. We are taking part in the death and the life of Jesus and that is the only way that our perspective on death and life is going to be changed. So we are baptized in Him when we take on that perspective participating in His death, in His suffering and in the abundant, free, joyful life that Jesus experiences. Amen? That, that should transform us to help us deal with the death that is all around us, all the time. And, and, and this isn't a trite, don't worry, heaven will be better kind of thing, right? Because Paul walks through darkness and torment. Jesus walks through darkness and torment. Jesus weeps and sweats blood and pleads with God that his life would be spared. Then what he say? Not my will, but yours be done. This is good. I don't want to go. But God's purposes for me are so much better. Life is good. Death is evil. And I want to face both with my head held high. Believing and knowing that Jesus, my hope, is faithful to the good that He will make the way that I can follow Him 
given over a place, and it'll be worth it. So, Lord, may that be my attitude. Um, the worship team and pastors can come to the front. If you, if you would like prayer, um, if you would like prayer, uh, you can come up and pastors would love to pray with you about this or about anything else. Um, I encourage you to be in prayer during this last song for yourself as well. We, at the end of the day, this is all natural. We need supernatural heart change. This is, absolute, this is so contrary to what we think and how we, how we live and believe. So God, change us. Change you. You come up as you're ready. Thank you. 
It is complicated, and um, so it's so good that you're a God that like came as one of us. You know, that sent the children who took the flesh and blood, that you did that as well. Not just so that you'd experience death, but you would experience the, the complicated mess of this life and what we experience, and just like the tragedy and the darkness and, 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 and the mess, all of it. You, you were in it, and you experienced it. So when we, we, we approach this topic, we approach considering death. Like we, just, we lay ourselves before you, the, 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 the crucified, risen Jesus, who comes back to us with stars in his hands and died. Jesus has, has walked this path, has blazed this trail before us, and doesn't call us to go anywhere that you haven't already gone. We praise you, Jesus, in death. I ask for your spirit to be with us in whatever way it needs to be that you continue to speak to us and to transform us according to your desire or whatever that looks like. I pray that increasingly, a little bit, day by day, the Lord of Christ, the diet game is imprinted on our hearts and made more and more real as we daily walk forward and approach you. That's what we're headed for. 
We just are thankful for you and I'm thankful for this church. Continue to work in us. We love you, Jesus. Give us all your glory. Amen. Go in peace.